This is Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the personal journeys of innovators and change makers. We talk to the doers and thinkers of our time to understand what motivates them and why they do what they do. Brought to you by your hosts, Anne and Strajit, and the entire CDTM podcast team in Munich. In today's episode, we are happy to welcome two guests, Joshua Cornelius and Mehmeth Yunmas. Joshua and Mehmeth both studied business administration and math in Munich. They're both CDTM alumni, and they both spent a semester abroad at Columbia University. Together, they founded Freeletics in 2013, which later rose to become a popular consumer internet company that offers personalized fitness plans and community support via a mobile application. After exiting from Freeletics in 2018, they waited no more than three weeks before they found it yet again. Their current venture is called Savvy, a company that aspires to invent aspects of the future of work and landed its seed funding round just a few days before the recording of this episode. During this episode, we will hear more about how it all began and where the idea of Freeletics even came from. We will dive deeper into the culture and the community that Freeletics was almost magically able to create for its end users and what role Joshua and Mehmet had to play in this process. Finally, we will also get to see how the industry of their current venture Savvy is vastly different from their previous experiences at Freeletics and how despite this, they're both still able to draw on, the, on their past experiences to build an employee enablement platform that has recently been vouched for by some of the tallest names in the German startup ecosystem. So without further ado, let's jump right into the episode. Hi, Mehmet, and hi, Joshua. We are actually super, super excited to have you here on this episode today, because to be honest, you're both a bit of Munich startup heroes for us. Right, Strajit? Yeah, that's right. Hi, thanks for the invitation. We're super glad to be here. Super glad to be here. Thanks for having us. So guys, we heard that it was on the first day of university that both of you met and the reason that you met was because you were both running late. Is that just a rumor or or is there some truth to it? That is actually true. It sounds like a very cheesy movie opener story, but we tell this to demonstrate how long we actually know each other. And then according to your LinkedIn accounts, at this time, you've both studied math next to business administration. So how come? Is math the secret ingredient to your success? That's a good question. I'm not sure it's a secret ingredient, but it's certainly a passion we share as well. So we always liked the sciences, we liked math. And after studying a semester of business only, we felt like we wanted to challenge ourselves a bit more. And we came to the conclusion to, to study math. And it certainly was, was challenging at times, but it was also really, really fun. We always felt like math is exercising your brain and it really make us, made us work hard. And would you say that it was your experience as being classmates in university that eventually led you to, to founding not one, but two startups? I think the idea of, of becoming entrepreneurs derived independently from each other, but it sure helped to have someone share the same vision and same idea of 
how we're going to contribute later on, how we're going to drive impact. And being entrepreneurs is something that, that was, I think, manifested very early on in our ideas. That's why we also started business. But yeah, at the, at the center at CTM, manifested even, even more having other founders like the founders of eGym or Stylite having paved the way for us and daring to start their own business instead of going to business school or pursuing other careers. I think there it really became real. And then the question for us was just like, when do we start our own business and which idea are we going to pursue? And, and how do we how do we approach this? And your first startup was uh, Freeletics. And what you want to understand is how many ideas did you guys probably flirt with before you landed on Freeletics? And how did you know that this is one idea that you would like to you would like to pursue? And please also litter this answer with some stories of the failures that you came across along the way. Yeah, that's that's actually an interesting question because I think we chose a very untypical path. We had committed as a team, Mehmet and I and Andre, our third co-founder, before we had an actual idea. We just knew that we wanted to start a company. And then we, we literally sat in front of a white, empty whiteboard. So nothing was on there. We had these three criteria. I think it was passion, our skills, and the market opportunity. And we, we would go through tons of different kinds of businesses and ideas and, and potential ventures we could start. And it took us quite a while. I think it took us a couple of months to actually end up with Freeletics. And it was not straightforward at all. But yeah, at the end, I think if we went back to our love for numbers and quantitative approaches and rated different ideas. I remember, I think we had three different ones at very last, which was something like food delivery related, a healthy snack and something close to Freeletics. And we actually did not vote for the training, the online training version one. We went with the nutrition um, delivery first, but we we pivoted just a couple of weeks in because we didn't enjoy it. We didn't feel like it would fit our competencies and experiences best. So yes, it took us quite some time to figure out that we wanted to do Freeletics. And during that time, I mean, I guess you both or you three all studied, did you set time aside for that full time or was it a weekend thing? How did you make time to come to this decision? Oh, we committed full time. It was a real commitment. So Yosha, Andre, and I sat together, I think it was January 2012, and we gave ourselves a, I think, two-year window where we decided not to pursue any other opportunity, not to be involved in any other project, and really like set everything aside, get in this room, <laughs> sit in front of the whiteboard, and yeah, figure out what we're going to do. And actually, that's um, interesting that you bring that up. And I think that was one of the key moments or key decisions that we made back then committing for each other was the strongest bond we have and especially at the beginning when we had nothing like we just had ideas floating around we didn't have any progress any traction nothing we just ideas three people sitting in a room and brainstorming or just figuring stuff out to keep going and even like before having any before having funding etc there, no, there are no signals for us to to say let's keep going other than our initial commitment and the bond that, that we made to each other so i do think that was one of the key decisions that we made and from what I read at the time, none of you had any coding skills whatsoever. And also the first product version of Freeletics was a PDF plan. So I wonder, were you afraid of launching a digital product? Did you think of it as a digital product or did you just think, how can we have something? Yeah, so it's true. And um, until this day, we don't have any coding skills. And we did not plan at all to launch a PDF. And actually, we were very, very ashamed of launching PDFs plans. And we did, in fact, launch an app first, but it crashed after just a couple of weeks and our customers weren't able to open it at all anymore. And we had to make this decision. We, we call it the, the Thursday, Monday move. So on a Thursday, we decided that we had to make money next Monday. It was all, already almost one and a half years in. We really run out of funds, still living with our moms and girlfriends and them, them providing for us. And 
then the only thing we could do ourselves was creating these PDF plans. And that's why we, we ended up launching them. But uh, we did not plan to, to launch PDFs and we tried building on it first. So excluding the PDF plans, your eventual product was an, a mobile application. When did that take off? When did you first start making sales? And when did that become a revenue generating uh, endeavor? To, to answer that question, I think we need to rewind a little bit because there were some things that Yosha mentioned about we first started with an app, how the initial idea actually came into fruition. And I can elaborate maybe a little bit on that is we did like coming from Santa, like we combined different different ideas and different trends that we wanted to uh, conclude. One of them was what we had passion for is finding a motivating structure for people to build their best self. Uh, and we thought training would be a great great area to do to, to so. So obviously, like we have to rethink back in 2012, 13, the rise of mobile apps, rise of the App Store, a lot of like a few successful apps coming out of the App Store, uh, smartphone, mobile penetration was really interesting to watch and observe. So there were a few trends going on in the digital world, and we knew that. Uh, so we had a few principles that we want to rely on when we build something. And one of them was having impact on a massive scale. And we knew we want to build a digital product coming out of CTM, talking about new trends and technology. They want to build a, a, a an experience that can be scalable. And we tried to build it. As sad, like we failed. But not only because we didn't have like all the skills, I, I do think it was a little bit we were off in, in timing. So we remember the first application, uh, mobile application that we, that we submitted to the App Store was rejected. And we had this fancy idea of having micro payments for a motivating structure of training. Like the business model was a little bit different. And what, what we could charge for within the App Store within, within iOS was very limited back then. So there were mainly newspapers. But the highest grossing apps were or single purchases within the App Store were navigation systems like TomTom, et cetera. So it was unheard of charging people a lot of money on the app store. Uh, I remember actually the main critique that we get from people outside is do even people have like credit cards and stuff like that? Like would they even buy something? Like, today it's unthinkable, right? And it's, just, it's not that, it's just like less than 10 years ago. So we submitted this app and we get this standard notification or, or, or rejection email from the app store saying, like giving us some codes and we needed to, to decipher what they mean and why they reject us, but they just didn't, give any uh, explanation so it didn't work out and that's when you're just like when this month and we we're frustrated we're like we put a lot of energy in there and we try to make this work and so we get rejected by the app store for the initial model that we pitched and for the subscription business that we, that we pitched actually because uh, they just wanted to have subscriptions for newly freshly generated content the subscriptions in the app store were built mainly to think of news serving newspapers and, and and media apps which was which was interesting so the idea of having a fitness app or, or a, um, a subscription for something that for a plan that renews but doesn't have fresh content was not was new and yeah we got rejected so the thursday monday action came we had to build up a shopify website and and put in the training plans that we want to build a mobile into the shopify app and i think the story about that is how we remember it back then is we became profitable with the first buy button meaning it built up a community, had some offline events and, and, and generated some buzz around our brand and things that we wanted to do. And we were able to monetize them through this Shopify web store. And we invested every, every, every cent that we made that into a web app and from there on invested more into a mobile app when the app store was actually ready to allow us a charge for subscription for a training plan. And that's how the bootstrap story goes because at the beginning, it was like a little bit different to, to get the business model going. But then when we when we had the first buy button on there, we just generated a lot of revenue and could invest them very efficiently in, in our next development. 
And you guys have a great historical perspective on how these fitness and lifestyle companies, uh, especially in the digital space, how they function. I'm also curious to know your opinions on the relatively new age companies in the space. So I'm thinking the likes of Peloton, or I know that there are some companies that are also foraying into the B2B space that they're selling fitness products or, or lifestyle products to companies so that their employees can benefit from them. And I know that that Savvy, your second company also has a similar business model, but we'll come to that. But before we do that, can you can you share some thoughts and views about these companies and what the space looks like today? Yeah, absolutely. You can clearly tell that it developed. So we think, especially when thinking about the connected fitness space, so the Pelotons, Tonals, Hydros, and so on, they were able to solve one, one critical problem of the digital subscription-only fitness products, which namely is, on the one hand, it's really hard to get really high retention rates because people would switch between products. There's so many so many offerings out there that uh, you, can, you can imagine it like every every January when you think about what, what product to commit to, you can you can select a different one trying to have more success this year than last year right so what they what they saw very well is that they create lots of buy-in on day one so you have to buy a, an expensive piece of hardware or expensive piece of equipment which on the one hand significantly increases customer lifetime value of course but also increases buy-in because once you've bought a i don't know a thousand euros plus product you're more likely to um, continue to use it as well and they combine it very well with strong content offerings. So it's not that they lost this part of having strong content, but they're even using it as well. Actually bringing this community aspect that worked very well for, for the boutique fitness offerings into your home as well. So we think that they did a great job and they certainly evolved as opposed to the, the content only digital products. When it comes to B2B, it's interesting as well. I think that here we see it a bit through the, the glasses of our new business where we feel like companies um, continue to take more responsibility for their wealth and well-being of the employees. And so we are very supportive of that as well, of course, because we know that being active, moving well, good nutrition are very, very, very impactful and can have a very positive effect on people, people working. So I think, yeah, we're all for it and respect the innovation that's ha happened for sure. Adding to that, there's a nice observation yesterday that we had when we looked back at, I think last year we had this revelation or the year before that, that businesses, like your workspace, your workplace, and your home becomes uh, a place for, for services. And that was true for Phyletics. We started that with making sure people don't have to go to the gym and can work out anywhere. But I think Tonal and Peloton actually build up on that and actually making your home a, a gym and even when equipping with that. And the same goes uh, holds true for B2Bs, right? Trying to get this experience or making sure that that the business caters for every certain lifestyle uh, and needs that, that that the employee has. So I think the shift that the responsibilities and the, the infrastructure shifted a little bit. Oh, thank you for that. I think that was super interesting to hear because phrased in my words, it basically also means that the brand and the community is at the core of the product and the company. And it's also something that you got right with Freeletics from the beginning. And I wonder whether you chose to focus on that or whether it just happened because if I look at startups going into this digital space, many of them say, okay, the logo, it will follow the colors. They will follow. Let's just build something first. And you had this really strong community before you even had the, the product. Yeah, it, it was important to us from the get go. I think that we had experienced the importance of community before starting Fredericks, even, especially in the context of, of exercising. And we knew that it would be great to have a similar experience in a digital product as well. And uh, I think that one of the one of the catchphrases, so to speak, we live by was that 
people would come because of the results, but they would stay because of the community. So it's very hard to market, or at least back then it was very hard to market a community. So to make people want to buy your product because of a community. But in the end, these personal bonds, these personal relationships would make people stay with the product. And so we, from the beginning, knew that it would be an important part. In general, we had three different aspects to our brand that we thought were super important. One was the community aspect, and it was also mirrored in our core value that we called together. But we also had two more. We had one that we called tough and one that we called free. And to us, the three together really sort of described our, our, our brand in a very holistic manner. So we thought that, yes, you want to feel that relatedness. You want to have this relationship in the community, but you also want to be really free. You don't want to have to go to a gym or to a trainer or use fancy equipment. And at the same time, we didn't really like these. There were two, there were two streams at the time. Like one stream was telling you that it's no effort at all, right? So the, the best-selling book in the health and fitness category was, was Schlank im Schlaf which in English would be slim overnight. And it, it literally was. So products would tell you, oh, it's so easy to achieve your, your, your fitness goals. Or they were super focused on high-end equipment like EMS training and so on. And we felt that we could, could remove all of that just if you're tough enough to really work hard and, and, and put your mind to it. So I think the combination of this tough together and free really, really created a product that, that somewhat hit the zeitgeist. And, and I think we saw different similar products around us as well that somewhat built on these foundational values, which then allowed us to create a community around that, these values, which then again allowed us to, to have better retention rates and people sticking to the product. So yes, we, we, we tried to design it up front, but of course, like hindsight, we, we, it's even easier to, to pinpoint the things that worked well. We might not have planned all of it perfectly from the get-go. Did you have a backlash regarding this kind of zeitgeist, as you just said, where people say, oh my God, these guys are crazy. They're making people basically die while they're training. So did you also get negative results in that sense? Curious because it's an extreme product, right? So it's, it's similar to CrossFit. People have to be tough. People have to, have to fight for the workouts. So I think what we experienced is that at the beginning, we had these pioneers, these very committed first users. And to them, it was really important that it's tough and it's different from all the other things. And yes, of course, like we knew it's not for everybody. And we knew that like many people would try it once and would say, it's not for me. It's not the kind of training I want to do. But what we did over time, of course, and what, what Fredix is continuing to do right now, even more so and even better, is that they made it more mainstream. So they, they improved the algorithm, making sure that people who are not at that fit can actually ease in and would get stuff that is fitting to their level of fitness. Like back when we started, it didn't exist. And if you don't like it, move on, that's fine. But today it's way more inclusive and, and yeah, way more adapted to, to individual fitness levels. And I think it's especially these early pioneers that have made it an insane community until this day. And I mean, people even have a Freeletics logo tattooed onto their body, which is kind of crazy. Or they say, it saved my life, it made me slimmer, it made me feel healthier. How does that make you feel? Actually, it makes us very proud. It confirms the reason why we decided to become entrepreneurs. When we started, we have some principles why, why we want to build a business. And uh, one of them, so no matter what we choose, when we stand in front of this whiteboard, one of them was making sure we're building something that creates real results for real people. And showing that people are so attached to the brand and to the product even tattooing it or just or just wearing it, showing this the affiliation with the brand and with the product and with the values that were tough together. Makes us really proud and show, confirms that we, we can have an impact on, on millions of people, especially in a digitized world where we can have impact on, on many people outside of, of, the, of the boundaries, so to say, on a global scale. Yeah, makes us really proud. But uh, I think part of that is also being the nature of becoming a better version of oneself is a very, is a deeply emotional and is very empowering. And also belonging to a group of people that share the same values, very aspiring. I mean, we see it at CTM as well, right? We do 
love to wear our CDTM swag and, and, and the sweaters and, and being affiliated uh, with a group of people that just share the same value. Yeah, it's just it's just inspiring. Yeah, maybe if I may add to that, I think what was particularly humbling in a sense is that like we really got tons of messages of people who experienced great impact by just going through the FedEx programs and, and sticking to it and seeing the changes. But what's most humbling is not that they had these physical transformations. They would take the way they thought about their training and implement it in different parts of their life. So they would get more confident and more disciplined and it would show at work and it would show in their relationships. And, and we get like we got crazy messages of people who said it helped them through sickness. It made them commit more to their partners. And of course, like it's not all beautiful and it's a selected group of people who would send us these messages, but it was so humbling. And, and I think Mehmet said before that one of the strongest reasons to keep, always keep going was the commitment amongst the three of us. But later on, it was also the commitment to our users. And just like reading those messages at night and just being happy and proud that we can create such an impact, it was really like, it was it was great, a great experience. Yeah, a lot of people make great products, but there are very few products that seep into the community and build this pop culture image for the product. And I think it's great that congratulations to you guys for having experienced that. But let's maybe also circle back to Freeletics as a business. So you mentioned in the beginning that you guys were bootstrapped. Was it bootstrapped all the way? At what point in time did you guys actually raise funding for Freeletics? When we started the VC, build contextually, the VC ecosystem was not that big and well-established as it is today. So raising money on an idea with no traction for a B2C subscription app as first-time founders and with the idea to be the leading fitness app in a newly established app market with no US proven copycat was unimaginable. So it was at the beginning of the rather necessity. And as Yosha said, we have a really, really lean approach how we started the business. So we tested everything that we had an idea of, right with the customers in that case, offline with people training with them, understanding the needs, understanding what we can do better. So their feedback kept us going. But uh, until the point, as we said, when we had the first buy button on a Shopify site, which didn't take as much money, it generated a lot of revenue. So when we had traction, when we actually were in a position to show some numbers, and to prove that our idea could work and, and the market is really rising, we didn't need it. So we had traction, we had revenues, we were profitable from day one, and we invested very efficiently into, into the growth of our business. So the story is when we had traction, we didn't need it. Okay, so at no point in time did Freeletics raise any VC money. Is that the case? That's the case. Until we sold the company in 2018. So that was the exit process. So we sold the company to FitLab in 2018. And FitLab raised more money now in the last years to further grow the, grow the business. But until that point, until we sold the company, it was purely bootstrap. That's really impressive. But then maybe a natural question at this point is, why did you guys decide to sell? That's a good question. There were several factors coming together, several, I would say, contextual fa factors as well. And the strongest impact had that we, for, for German standards, we have humble beginnings and we always had responsibility, financial responsibility for many family members. And we, we felt like we had the opportunity to make sure that they would be safe and secure, financially secured. Uh, so there was always something was on our minds and we knew at some point we would make the decision to take care of that. And at the same time, around, I would say, 215 to till 218, the, the market, the acquisition market for digital sports products was really hot. And we have, we have seen several major acquisitions in the space. And we knew that it might come to an end sooner or later. So we had heard about the buying abilities of the big players. And we were in touch with people who, who sort of had grounded assumptions what would happen in the space. 
So it felt to us that it might be the one opportunity we have to make it happen now. At the same time, we really enjoyed building Fredix throughout our 20s, but we also felt like we would enjoy focusing on a new topic at some point. And then bringing all these three aspects together, they, they somewhat created a perfect storm and we then decided to, to, to sell the company. So one other question I have regarding the, the Fredix time is, you have been called Munich's most international team at the time. And I kind of wonder, did you consciously recruit employees with international roots? And did this somehow change your company culture? We didn't actively strive for it. But what I do think is that it's very natural for us. I mean, just look at us as the founders, right? Andre, is, his parents are from Ukraine and Poland. My parents are from Turkey. So we do have a very diverse background. We grew up in very diverse groups. A lot of our close friends are still you know, when we grew up, there were still friends I have different backgrounds and diverse backgrounds. And we always enjoyed that. Everybody bringing different cultures and different ways of thinking to the table. We experienced that at CTM as well, where diversity was also lived and breathed. And yeah, I think that's very natural for us. We don't have active, we're not actively sort of selecting for it, but uh, I do think that subconsciously we're, we're, we're very open to it. Then with three founders, I would assume there would be a bit of a fight for who gets the title of the CEO and who doesn't. But you guys actually had another person come in and be the CEO very early on. And I wonder why. Yeah, I think titles were never important for us. We knew that we bet on, on strong teams. So we hired very early on from CTM and people that were surrounded by us. And we're very grateful being able to acquire very uh, early on people from the center uh, they were passionate about our topic and they were very driven. Daniel was one of them. And he, I think he joined us in 2014. Uh, so very early on, uh, knew the company, knew us personally. He was actually in my class, my CTM class. And yeah, he was, he was there early on. And as Santalings uh, are, they are eager to take on more responsibility. And Daniel was one of them. So he took uh, a lot of responsibility and shaped the way we, we derived and, 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 and grew our business. And later on, also took over and, and, and stayed with the company also after our exit. That's a great discussion about Freeletics. I think this is a good time for us to actually move on to the next uh, startup that you guys founded and, and you're still working on, which is uh, Savvy. So let's maybe begin with the question about why you decided to found again in the first place. Was it even an option to maybe take up corporate jobs after you had done slogging in as, as startup founders? Or was it a complete no-brainer that we are always going to stay founders for the rest of our lives? Yeah, I think to us, the question never occurred. If we're going to start a company again, it was rather about when and how and what exactly. But we, we like we enjoyed we enjoyed the journey so much. Like we were surrounded by people we really really liked working on a topic that we had a lot of passion for, creating impact for real people and getting their feedbacks. It was very obvious to us that we would found a company again. But I think to me it was a bit quicker than expected that we would sit together again and think about what we could do. I, I would have expected that we at least like take off a couple of months and just enjoy life and be happy over our achievements. But it was very quick. It was I think eight weeks. 10 weeks later, we already um, spoke about it again. Of course, like we eased into it. We would not right away, full on start something again, but but we discussed that we would start again and we would look at different topics and, and so on. And why did you decide to found inside this, let's call it future of workspace? Why is the current way that companies try to enable their employees broken or is it not broken? Okay, so when we started thinking about what we would build next, we did not think about the 
the tagline future of work. It certainly is a category we now ended up in, but it is not the reason why we started doing it. To us, what we enjoy most is helping people, supporting people unfold their potential, making the best of, of what they've been given. And I think in athletics, both in context of sports and, and health, and the, the second big passion we shared, and also the, the context in which we actually met, um, is education. And I think there was like there was actually several contributing factors that led us towards education. So one was that, the shared passion, but we also stumbled upon the Human Development in Index, which would be a theoretical framework or foundation for our ambitions to have impact on the way people would develop, which would talk about three major factors that impact human development, which namely are health, education, and income. And since we felt that income would largely be a consequence of education, it was very easy to narrow it down to focusing on education. And then the question was, what exactly in the large space of education? And in the first small, actually two people, no window office we would rent when starting, we had this lifeline ranging from zero years old to 99 years old. And we would look at different times at everybody's lives. And we would, we would actually wonder, like, wh where is the market most broken? Where is the offering most broken? And what was super obvious to us is that there's no structure at all once you are entering the workforce. So it's fairly structured when you think of school and university and apprenticeships and so on. And you might say, well, I don't like it, but at least there is something. But once you're entering the workforce, there's nothing at all. And um, it might have been okay if you look at our parents and grandparents' generations, but they have like one, two, three different jobs in their lives. But if you look at people who are graduating right now, they are predicted to have between 10 and 12 different jobs. And half of them don't even exist now. So even if you knew what you wanted to do 20 years, you couldn't study it currently. And we felt like somebody would have to take responsibility and allow people to develop. And the question is, is it the, the company's responsibility or is it in, the individual's responsibility? And we believe that in Europe, where you have very strong employee rights, where you cannot just let people go because they don't have the skill sets anymore that you would need as a company, that companies have to take responsibility. And that's how we ended up with a B2B employee development centered product. And over time, working with different pilot customers that are, that are scale-ups and, and have typically small people and HR teams, we added additional use cases because the same people would do more than just the employee development. And that's why we added use cases like onboarding and employee connection programs. That's a good segue to, or to re-emphasize on how we actually approach athletics and how we build athletics and also now how we approach building savvy is having a very broad mission that motivates us to spend time and energy into this field and this sounds very broad right and, and very like vague but it's an also that's guiding us and it's reminding us every day when we do when we struggle when we have when we know some things just don't work out as they should just remind us why why we're in there why we're in this in the, in the first place but at the same time there's always a concrete next step. And the question is, so what is it, what's a concrete next step that is mostly like looking at people around us? As far as we looked at our friends and, and people that we know, how they train, how they unfold their potential. For Sevi, it was like, it was about seeing how companies in our, in our, in our surrounding friends, other entrepreneurs, how do they approach the topic of employee development and, and, and growth? And, and there we, we start very lean, bottom-up, and ask the question, what would help you right now? What's the biggest problem that you have? And trying to uncover problems in this space that are real and they're very concrete. So that it might seem like a little bit disconnect. For us, it's very clear that we are on a clear mission, but have to solve real problems and, and be very lean and very customer-focused and solve their actual problems they have today in order to create real value for real people. I'm actually super curious to hear about how you see the future employee and how the future employee can unfold their full potential. I mean, there's this concept of either being a specialist or a generalist, and then there's a few letters, the letter-shaped employees. What do you think is something that one should aspire to be in, I don't know, 10 years' time? 
That's a very interestingly framed question. Like, what should somebody aspire to be in in ten years' time? I wouldn't say that somebody that we have a clear idea of the roles that will be there in ten years. I think it's much more about creating the foundation so that people can adapt to different challenges and and new roles that would sort of come up. So I think it's on the one hand more about these foundational skills, like having the collaboration skills and critical thinking skills and fostering creativity and so on. But then also it's about creating structures. And that's again, like we truly believe that we need a structural change, giving companies the, the tools they need in order to create the structure that allows for dynamic and flexible adaption to these new challenges. Because at the end, we, we will see challenges in the customer needs and in market behavior, then companies have to react to that. And then they will need their team members, their employees to acquire new skills, depending on these very flexible, unexpected changes. So the ability to change and adapt is, is way more important than the actual single skill. And yeah, we would be super happy if we could sort of allow for more of this flexibility and adaption in, in, in companies. And I, I do think looking at this change, the, the real burden is on the people and culture departments of companies. They're now getting in the center of attention for, for most leaders, for most CEOs, about understanding how we can create an infrastructure and an environment where, my, where the people can grow, where the employees can grow and adapt and get reskilled or upskilled. So the continuous development is becoming at the core of many companies, of modern companies, of innovative companies. And at the same time, so the one thing is the people department are getting more important, but at the same time, managers and leaders have to become coaches for their employees. So um, actually, they are the ones having to lead the way or creating a, a learning culture and a, and a culture of, of continuous development as well. And, and we do think that they're vastly uh, underutilized and underdigitized and just need more attention, but also uh, more solutions that help people departments and managers unfold the potential of their employees. Uh, so Savvy is a B2B startup and Freeletics was B2C. And two things cannot be more fundamentally different from each other than these two in terms of how you sell your product, how you market it, how you price it, or how you uh, define success for your product. So how was this, this change for you? And have there been any ideas that you've been able to steal from the B2C experience and implemented them over here in the B2B experience, which conventionally one, one doesn't end up doing? Good question. So what we certainly took away from our experience at Freeletics is the general approach. I think there are many parallels. Both at Freeletics and at Sevi, we started with, I would say, some fundamental research in the market, understanding the trends, understanding the players, understanding co competition and so on, so just to gather first insights. But then we would very, very quickly start to talk to users, work with them, actually try to create value for them in a non-scalable fashion, just to understand what, what, is that, what is it that they need? What is it that would create value for them? And we did that in the same way we did it before. We, like we actually structured the first couple of months at Sevi according to the same stages we went through when founding Freeletics. So I think that the, the approach is similar. Of course, the results, so the findings we have, the insights we gather along the way, they are very different for sure. And also, if you look at the assumptions we had about the insights we might gather at Sevi, they are quite different from the actual insights we, we gathered. So that's different. But the approach certainly helped us. And I think at the end, we, had, we just had to be very, very open to learn every day and to not think that we already knew the solution because we had built another product before. So yeah, I think staying, staying open-minded, learning, iterating, that certainly helped us. Is there one that is considerably easier than the other, B2B versus B2C, or do they both have their own challenges? Now you already served the easy answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Both both are challenging for sure. I think from, for us at least, it, it 
in both times took time to find out what exactly would solve the, the, the hardest problems, what exactly would solve the, the real pain points of, of our customers, of our users. Both are difficult, but both are really fun as well. So I feel like it is, it's like to us, it's really fun to now have a different riddle when we have to relearn so many things and we have to rethink so many things. So I, I, I find it very, yeah, very, very fun and very inspiring to, to have this very different view on the world again now. Whether it's B2B or B2C, what is different the second time around for you and how do you work with each other now and compare to back then? It's exciting that everything is possible again. So once starting for addicts, after a few years, there's a commitment to a structure, to a model. It's about growing within the market, within the model and trying to execute that and scale that. But having a fresh beginning is always exciting. So I think that's that's something that, that, that definitely gives us energy and also opens a, a, a lot of doors. What was also different is that we had to get used to doing everything ourselves again. So coming from a from a team, a great support, and a lot of smart people taking care of different aspects of the business. It was really like from small things about opening opening the letters every every, every other day, answering every single email, being in a two-person office. Nothing happens if we don't make it happen, if we don't be active for it. So that's something we have to get used to again. Yeah, because there's one contrast I find very, very interesting. So on the one hand, I think we have a better understanding now that certain decisions we, we, we make now will have a big impact on our future. And I think we are less likely to make these typical first-time mistakes. Obviously, that's what you call them, first-time mistakes. But on the other hand, it also made us, we're also less positively naive in a way, where when you do it for the first time, you, you just go ahead and you just do it. And at least for us, it, it feels different now, where we, where we sort of, Think twice more often, I'd say. And it has its positive sides, but it also has its negative sides. And yeah, maybe uh, continuing with the second question you asked of the way we work together, we are still at a stage right now at C stage where we very fluidly divide tasks among the two of us. So we have been working together for so long that it's very easy for us to do it on a daily, on a weekly basis. So we have these daily lunch talks during noontime, no matter if we work remotely or at the same place. And we would always update our, um, each other and we would yeah, spar and sort of create new ideas and then also divide tasks according to what's currently at the company. Because currently, like our the tasks that are actually need to be done every week, they are so different. Like it's in some week, it might be sales. Next week, it might be product. The week after, it might be marketing or some design challenges. And we as founders, we are always filling in wherever we are needed. The next question that we have for you is about how you deal with the fear of failure. And the reason why I ask this is because you're in a very peculiar position. Savvy, till very recently, at least, I know that you guys had a funding round recently, but you were still proving your mettle, right? Now, you, one way to look at it is that we've done something successful. We've proven our mettle already. If we succeed or not, it's okay. And the other way is, uh, well, if we don't succeed this time, people can assume that the first time it was a fluke with Freeletics. How do you guys rationalize these thoughts and how do you deal with the fear of failure? I don't think we think of failure. I don't think it's a concept that is affecting us emotionally. I don't think we rather think of impact and success. And we're very much driven by that. And that sounds like now very cheesy and, and, and very obvious, but it really is. And I think if, if I have to, like, if we have to be in one of these buckets, I think it's the first one that you mentioned that we have proven ourselves and we've sort of had a first record of success. And whatever we do with Savvy is we try to aim as big as possible and try to give it our all. We don't think that we have anything to lose. It's rather going full in and trying to create the most impact that we can with our abilities and with the resources that we have. What is like a daily moment in your life where you say, okay, this is what I need. This is what keeps me going. Can you make that tangible for us? 100%. It's all, it has always been and still is 
feedback from users. Last week, we had a, a Slack message of one of our teams. Now for B2B, that's maybe one of the differences. The customer feedback is a little bit more abstract. So the real value that we create for the employees through people departments and HR departments maybe a little bit more undirect, but still we get these messages. And we have one message where one new hire gave kudos to the responsible person in the company, the person in the company responsible for the onboarding process and highlighted that Savvy was a great tool to use and really helped the new hire to orientate, feel welcomed and perform from day one at the company. And reading that is something that gets us going. That's like creating real results for real people. That's why we started, that's why we started being entrepreneurs and that's why we're in this. And reading, getting confirmation of that is something that's, yeah, that's motivating us and fueling us. What I find quite surprising is that neither of you know how to program. And that's a little bit of a punch in the gut for me because I'm a software engineer and I consider myself quintessential for building a startup. But clearly I'm not because you guys have done it without a software engineer in the founding team. But what do you guys think about this? Because this is this is very, let's say, proverbial, right? That you need somebody who builds and somebody who can sell to make the perfect founding team. But you guys obviously disagree with it. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, so first you're right. We, we both can't program. And I do think that it would be great if one of us could. If we had the same relationship, the same, like it's the same strength in our personal bond. And if one could program, I think it would be, would be even more of an advantage. But I think there are many, many ways to be successful. And I think that we do have a sound and deep product and, and, and design understanding, especially from a usage and user perspective. And I think we have enough technical understanding to sort of to come up with ideas and to challenge solutions. But we are also very, very aware that we cannot program. And that's why we would, from the beginning, both in the case of Freeletics and in the case of Savvy, look for people in our closest team that can provide the skill. So. Thomas was our first CTO back at Freeletics, and now Vishnu is our engineering lead here here at Savvy. And they they are they have immense important roles, and we are fully aware of that. And obviously, like building a technical product, building a B two B SaaS solution, one of the people who makes product decisions, who who leads, needs to have these skills. And again, we are aware and willing to find people in the, in the closest surrounding who can uh, help out with the skills. So one entirely different aspect uh, instead of founding that we wanted to talk about is investing. And we wanted to know, what do you invest in nowadays? Do you invest in startups yourselves? Yes, we do. We invest in startups as well as in VC funds. It's na it naturally happened being part of CTM and the largest startup ecosystem. We were first skeptical about if you should rather be just entrepreneurs or also be investing, but we're now really enjoying this. And we have invested in the last um, around two years, I think in a dozen opportunities. Uh, it's really fun to share experiences, to get to be surrounded by fellow ambitious founders, and also seeing great ideas, very talented people are working on. It inspires us, and we, yeah, we are drawing a lot of energy and inspiration from that. And what kind of startups do you invest in? Do you have a topic favorite or a team favorite? Yeah, we don't have a focus when it comes to markets or industry or geography. And also we think that it's like we don't have the time to really go deep into into the different topics and really evaluate dif different solutions and get an understanding of the competitive landscape and so on. So so we only can have a very superficial view of things. and. and that's why we mainly focus on, yes, for sure, the team and their backgrounds, on a general idea of the market size. So is there a big opportunity at all? Is there traction already? And the fourth criterion is the ambition. So how, how far 
do 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 want the founders push 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 the startup. But apart from that, we have invested in very very different kinds of of, of startups. More obvious ones like B two C mental health and fitness, and both in the Europe and the US. But also, I would say. Considering our background, maybe less obvious ones like B two B decision automation and yeah, similar things. So very, very, very broad, and we don't we don't focus too much here. And what is your usual discovery process like? Is it mostly through your network, or do you always sometimes also get stumped by complete strangers who who know that you guys are investors and and then have a chat with you and it leads to an investment? It's mostly by introductions and joint net our joint network through CTM or other people that we've worked with in the past or through investments or founders that we invested in now recommending us or wanting to give us an intro to to other founders also through the VC funds that we get exposed to some of some of the opportunities yeah i would say joint network introduction certainly but we get also reached out via linkedin for investment opportunities yeah okay so now is a good time for us to move on to the next and the final block in this episode which is your toolbox so first question of the toolbox what is a book that everybody should read? Sapiens by Yuval Harari. The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. It's interesting because I love fantasy and Mehmet loves sci-fi and my fantasy sagas are Aragorn, Stonelike Archive, Wheel of Time and Mistborn. And maybe Mehmet has something to add as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm fanatically into sci-fi, not only books, but also movies. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. But also a big fan of the the foundation uh, trilogy, especially of, of Isaac Asimov. What is one app that everybody should download? And and mind you, Freeletics is not an acceptable answer for this question. One app, one productivity app that I really love at the moment is called. I might pronounce it wrong. It's called Sunsama or Sunsama. It's a great tool that combines emails, Notion projects, and everything else in one nice, neat, and very lean, effective productivity app. This sounds like something I need to download. <laughs> and what is a podcast that you love listening to? Yeah, this time I think I really have to name three. So I enjoy listening to the Lex Friedman podcast. He covers everything from sports and martial arts to um, artificial intelligence. Human Lab, Neuroscience, really loved it as well. And how I built this for the best uh, founder stories and I think an obvious one. So why don't you tell us one routine that you guys follow? I have a fairly new routine in my life. It's going for a walk two times a day with each daughter once. So one, once in the afternoon and once in the evening. I would say two routines. One is intermittent fasting and bringing my daughter to bed. That's also something that I do every day, almost every day. The last question for this episode is, who is an innovator with four Indian roots that everybody should know? Really tough. That's also relating maybe to a question where we like answered a little differently about the diversity. We're very well aware how and how we structured the team. So Yosh and I call this team design when we think about our team. We really care about who we want to work, especially because we know that we spend a lot of time with these people in our wake time. <laughs> and we rather want this to be a very interesting group of people that inspire us and motivates us um, and also challenges us. And for us, like we're aware when we give people, we give people chances that we know that maybe like, you know, there, there were maybe language barriers, et cetera, et cetera. But you try to give them a, where when we hired someone from Brazil, he's like, Hey, I know someone else who is a really good designer. Let's try them out. Or, Oh, I have a network in this and this direct area. And we were so overwhelmed by the positive vibes and energy that these people bring and, and the different communities they can tap into. It's, it's really great to see, but if we have to force ourselves to put quotas on, let's say, Fresco or like savvy hiring, I think I think that's a measure of last resort because 
at this point, we failed of embracing the culture of diversity, embracing the positive sides of diversity. And we have to remind ourselves to a rational number. I don't think we, we hope to do that. We aspire to do that very naturally. At least that's our ambition. Completely agree. It's a very similar experience at my current workplace also, a lot of this network effect. Okay, yeah. Thanks, thanks a lot for joining us today, Mehmet and Joshua. It was great having you guys. The Mostly Awesome podcast is brought to you by CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork together with Annabel Schäfer, Frederik Junge, Kai Kirsch, and Julia Kroslovskaya. If you like our podcast and you would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends about Mostly Awesome. We would like to invite inspiring guests with diverse cultural backgrounds to our podcast. Our inbox podcast at cdtm.de is always open for your feedback or any warm intros. Thanks for tuning in and see you in two weeks or talk to you in two weeks.